This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Mind Control, comma, the fun kind. Nidar. Lee and Hendrix, Occult Busters. And the Rotodyne. Welcome to the island you only think you remember. Welcome to the island is the first adventure anthology for the third edition of the Over the Edge RPG. It features four original storylines by award-winning authors, each with hooks for different character types, making it easy to bring the action to your campaign when and where it's needed. Launch brand new stories, add intriguing complications to existing arcs, or create exciting one-shots that bring the weird to your gaming table. Take a road trip with an ominous twist. Overthrow the government. Explore the place you only think you remember in Welcome to the Island. It's available now from Atlas Games. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. The show notes you only think you remember. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut, where in the gaming hut you will have fun. You will have fun. The gaming hut is fun. You wish to enter it. You wish to enjoy Doritos. You wish to bring more Doritos. Bring it all. Bring everything to the GM. The GM is in control. <laughs> Robin, that... That amazing uh, journey we all went on is the kind of mesmeric journey that happens repeatedly in popular culture, but rarely in role-playing games, and that's because players don't like being mesmerized. They don't want to turn into a chicken, they don't want to walk with a glassy-eyed stare, and they certainly don't want to bring Doritos. So, Robin, how can we make the mind control thing fun? In games. I mean, not in real life. Obviously, in real life, it's a terrible thing. You shouldn't do it. Right. Don't be like Dr. Caligari. That's our message yes. to the kids. Yes, we're warning against uh, people doing something that is impossible in real life, uh, which is an important warning to give. Well, also don't try it because you look like a prat. Well, protecting people from looking like prats, I think, is, is beyond our purview here. Um, <laughs> our, our powers are only so extensive. But among our powers. Yes. As you point out, heroes getting uh, subjected to mental influence is a basic component of pretty much any fantastic genre you can think of, whether it happens all the time in Star Trek and uh, is obviously a constant magic in horror uh, being uh, possessed or uh, even happens in superheroes, the ultimate fantasy of of uh, independence and uh, and power. Super. Exactly, yes. Uh, and uh, that's part of, you know, that the hero does a heel turn, you know, finding a way for, you know, why does Superman suddenly want to fight Batman? Well, he's one of them is mind controlled. And, and so some players just never, ever want to be influenced at all, ever. And uh, they might even, you know, pull out a an, an X card if there's any uh, possible suggestion of of that. Um, it, it's also worth noting, though, that uh, players are perfectly happy mostly to mind control uh, GMCs and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, sleep spells and turning undead. There's all kinds of, you know, you're constantly influencing them and reading their minds and all that stuff. 
So, so let's assume that a player is somewhat open, uh, whether you're intuiting this or asking in advance to uh, being uh, a mind controlled. How do you make that a fun thing to play? So uh, we're assuming that someone is somewhat willing to do it. Uh, but how do you make that as fun as possible? Right. So uh, my uh, answer that we're then going to develop is that it that they're mentally influenced within certain parameters so that they still mostly have agency and so forth. But there are certain things that when they happen, you are put under that influence. So you do not uh, become a robot who has totally taken uh, your control away from you. You're not run by the GM during a fight, fighting your own fellow characters, but rather there are certain things that you can't do that you would ordinarily do that you then have to work around. And so, for example, the way that I've dealt with this in the Yellow King role-playing game, uh, most things that happen to your character happen through shock or injury cards. And of course, it makes perfect sense in a game about uh, mind-altering uh, terror to have uh, the character's uh, behavior altered by some supernatural force from Carcosa. So uh, there's the enthralled card that uh, vampires and uh, powerful Carcosans might be able to deal to you. And the text of that card reads as follows. You may not act against the interests of the entity responsible for you taking this card as you reasonably understand them. When the entity harms another PC, roll a die. On an even result, discard. Discard if the entity harms you or is destroyed, not by you, of course. And so that gives you uh, a range of things that you can then play and still do uh, and still have control of your character without, uh, but, but there's still a blockage. There's still a disadvantage of that. And of course, in this situation, as there would be in almost any situation where there's a possibility of being mind controlled, you had a chance to get out of it by uh rolling a composure test in this case. And in uh, Gumshoe, uh, you can pile on the points. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just put a bunch of stability into that test. And at great right. personal cost, you've thrown off the domination of the vampire. But for how long, Robin? Yes. Um, well, in, in this case, you probably have, but also somebody else in the group uh, possibly uh, did as well. And so right. how do you uh, handle this, Ken, when you're, uh, do you dish out mind control as a regular uh, thing in your horror games? I mean, it it happens. The general run of players that I have are very, very cooperative and they well, cooperative in a very narrow sense for this topic only um, in that if I'm, if they're in a situation, if they're in a genre, if they're in a story and something like that happens, they will pick it up and play with it. Now, they don't want, like you say, no one wants to be a robot, but they don't mind a um, uh, the GM saying, why, that's not a vampire at all. That's that's your that's your oldest friend. Why is he here? Uh, he, he, why, you know, hey, look at that. It's your buddy. And so they'll they'll role play into that because you're giving them a role playing thing, which is the opposite of staggering around like a zombie. It's like, no, no, we can't hurt him. It's it's my old buddy, Steve. And then hijinks ensue. And in, um, an F20 game, of course, the, you know, the, the, there's various, uh, spell effects or whatever, you know, that, uh, that take over the other guy's action for a bit. And, um, by and large, uh, in other groups, less so in this group, I find that players are always happy to be told they have to shoot their friends. Yeah. <laughs> 
Because th- that's the secret of mind control is that just as why are Superman and Batman fighting, the players enjoy the opportunity to be given social permission to uh, torque non-disastrously, but a little bit uh, with the rest of the group. And so uh, it's it's fun to play that you don't uh, think that the uh, the man in black or the lizard king are in fact a a threat or it's you know it's fun to pick up the phone and call your uh alien suborners and the sort of the thing to walk there is that the player also will try and keep that fun so that they will uh mess with people a little but not enough to be actively fun ruining but rather to have a fun interesting challenge and and do it in a way that everybody is in on the joke right so you don't secretly tell the player that they are mind controlled. Um, you let the other players know as well so that they can also play with that ball. Yeah. And again, if you've got players that are used to firewalling or used to playing one thing on the player level and one thing on the, on the character level, you know, they'll roll with it and it'll be, it'll be sort of a little moment of, of irony uh, for everyone as they, as they're like, Oh, well, there you go. Um, uh, now's the time now Greg can roll a 20 now when he's mind controlled. Thanks a lot, Greg. That was really helpful. And you have uh, a fun level of, 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 again, I guess irony is the best word because you're outside looking in and seeing the situation and realizing the sort of ridiculous and arbitrary nature of, of the action. But that's sort of the joy that uh, made that, that went philosophical in a, in a weird direction. Um, I, I also <laughs> would say that, uh, one of the fun things about mind control is that um in a game where it's a a less of a uh of a of a you know our team against other teams situation if you're in a, a game like a drama system game or a or a nobilis game or something or amber or whatever where there's some assumption of varying player agency mind control also introduces a variable that allows for more fruitful I don't want to say PVP, but P not so much pro P activity because you can be engaged in some sort of activity and people are like, well, he did touch that glowing orb or he did spend a long time talking to that uh, woman in black. Maybe he was mind controlled. And so that gives you a level of, of in deniability and investigation that you can do that opens up the question. Whereas just prying into your, your, your buddy's activities would be unrealistic. And so it gives you an excuse in game to look into uh, their machinations that you wouldn't have necessarily in a game where there was no mind control and there would be no reason to suspect that your buddy was dropping a dime on you to to some uh, third force, right? Right. Another thing to do as a GM is to uh, make sure that the uh, consequences of being mind controlled are at least somewhat roped off. So in the classic Dracula scenario where he is... Uh, slowly seducing someone into vampirism and will eventually wind up destroying that person, that character is not a player character. That's a GMC because that is about indeed about having your agency completely taken away from you. That's literally the horror of it, right? Yes. And when you're doing a scenario where characters are being bumped off one by one, you don't have the player characters bumped off one by one, but you have them preventing the accelerating bumping off because it's a drag to have your character uh, killed and have to leave the table, right? Mm-hmm. And so here, look at what the aim of the uh, the, the mind-controlling uh, antagonist is. And if they're going to do that to players, make sure that they have some reason why they're not completely destroying the uh, uh, 
person they're mind controlling, but rather are looking to achieve some other goal, like gaining information or, you know, just I'm not trying to kill you. I just want to make sure that you don't kill me or something like that so that it's within fair boundaries. It's not uh, depressing. It's a fun challenge to to try and loop your way, hole your way out of. Yeah. Um, another trope of mind control is that the person who is mind controlled is then put on trial afterwards for what they have done. And the uh, heroes have to prove that they have been mind controlled. Um, and if that is a fair mystery that they really have a chance of getting around and the victim is able to participate in solving that mystery. Uh, that's one thing. It also, however, brings the question of uh, worlds and settings where mind control is a commonplace, why there isn't a, uh, this person has been mind controlled. Uh, this is well known in, in legal precedent right, and you've yeah. established that you're not guilty by reason of mind control. And in fact, mutant city blues does that. Right. Yeah. And, and a supers universe, you know, with, you know, Hector Hammond or, or whoever running around. Yeah, obviously that'd be like a standard. Oh no, your honor. And then all you'd have to prove is that Hector Hammond was in town and he was, well, not guilty. There you go. Like the, the yes. Twinkie defense, except always. And if it worked. Yes. And, and in mutant city, please, there's like a, like a, a serum test you could do. It leaves antibodies in your system. It's like, mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're off the hook. And of course that would be a fun thing where you could, your cops in mutant city blues could be, Proving that someone who is claiming to have been mind controlled wasn't and was a party to uh, that all along. But again, that's beyond, you know, the purview of what actually happens to your character in the course of play. And in the and in the private eye version of Mutant City Blues, you can have the classic situation where the guy got off because he was mind controlled. But the private eye knows he was guilty. Yeah. Right. It's one of those. Oh, no, I was mind controlled. That's why I, you know, did that horrible thing. And it's, he's like, I've gotten away with the perfect crime, but fortunately, the Mutant City PIs are there to, you know, bring justice, even if they can't bring the law. Uh, yes. And another mystery plot that spins out from that is, you know that someone was mind controlled to commit a crime, but you don't know who mind controlled them. And so the, the mystery is, uh, how do you establish that? How do you, uh, uh, where's your trail of clues that leads you to uh, expose the person? And that could be, uh, that could happen in any number of uh, different mystery genres that we cover. You could have been uh, influenced uh, by a cultist, or perhaps the fault is that of a mysterious statue that you then have to destroy. Or, or the, or the uh, great race you know, of Yith dropped in and took over your body for a bit. Yes. So, uh, you know, why did uh, Henry Armitage uh, set the copy of the ne Necronomicon on fire and uh, burn down half of the Miskatonic Library? There could be all sorts of reasons for that. Or, <laughs> it you just know, been we, a particularly vigorous deaccessioning policy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And of course, you know, the, the twist of that could easily be that, you know, it, it wasn't really the Necronomicon he burned. That was like a cover for the mind controller mm -hmm. to steal the Necronomicon. Um, and so I think that's an area actually of mind control that is relatively untouched in the genre sources, right? Is that if this is a standard thing in the world, there's all sorts of different uh, scenario mystery premises that can uh, come out of uh, that assumption. Yeah. I mean, because so many of these genres, the fact of something unnatural is itself what the genre is about. And so ramifications of the fact of something unnatural, unless you're in a desperately mature or decadent, uh, depending on your phrase, uh, superhero or fantasy universe where, you know, now the fun is the sort of, um, uh, matlocking of the, of the, of the genre. And even matlock is, is more like crime. What? But so that was a bad example, but the, the sort of, um, attempt to, Say, well, given that we're all bored with vampires, 
what would be the logical yet fun thing that would happen in a world of mind controlling uh, blood drinkers? And then often what that uh, that doesn't actually read as much fun as just let's just do the book where everyone's actually scared of vampires and they're unusual um, as opposed to where we have to as a, as a society uh, adapt to them. Because that's less interesting, I think, because that gets, as we have been implying at least, that gets into sort of questions of, of precedent and other boring parts of the law as opposed to hunting down criminals and discovering them parts of the law. Right. Well, I think uh, that that sounds like a conclusive note. Uh, where it we does. Can, it, almost, uh, it almost turned into a general principle, and that's a steady danger in, in these parlous times. Uh, general principles and segments, so uh, let's do. move on. They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a loading dock in Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrane Press web store or a top retailer near you. The most ambitious project yet from gumshoe master Robin D. Laws. The Yellow King role-playing game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to drive your terrified players through. Bellapoc Paris, where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked demimonde, investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. The wars, where weirdness-savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis on the eerie shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War. Aftermath, where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred-year tyranny they helped to defeat. This is normal now, our ordinary present day. Or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe. Where physical injuries and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points. They haunt you as fiendish cards with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions. Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found object player-facing guide to 1890s Paris. And the missing and the lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry set in the aftermath reality. Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before or it gets you. If cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrane Press Store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or The Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at pelgranepress.com slash shop. It's time once more to uh, stroll uh, down uh, a, a gallery as uh, we look at, in this case, photographs on the wall. And uh, there's an Art Nouveau vibe to uh, this particular gallery that we're walking through in the Culture Hut. Because, uh, Ken, although we are going to discuss a figure uh, once again with the Ballot Pock from the Yellow King role-playing game, I am throwing this uh, Yellow King segment uncharacteristically because uh, the person we're going to talk about today is your favorite Bellapoc character, or at least the one you were most insistent that I include uh, in the Yellow King role-playing game. And this is Nadar, uh, which was the uh, 
Nam du Photographie of Gaspar Felix Tournachon, who is a uh, photographer, entrepreneur, cartoonist, and balloonist. Because if you're going to be one of those things, you should be the other. And spy and propagandist. And uh, I believe that uh, he was also, in his youth, an, an anarchist. And so... He had a lot of activities that he got up to. He was all the ists. Yeah, I love him. I, I love this guy. He was, um, he's the, one of the very best sorts of responses in the Belle Epoque, in the Victorian era, whatever you want to call it, because he's the guy who says, new thing, I shall master it and make a packet of money off of it. And he did that for his whole life. Um, he did not make a packet of money off the siege of Paris, but he became a hero in that he set up balloon flights. Uh, to bring messages to the outside world. Later, people, hurtful people, said that his balloon flights mostly went off course and crashed. But, you know, it was a siege. What could you do? Nothing. Right. Well, there were lots of hurtful people because others uh, accused him uh, during his balloon uh, flights over the Austrian forces where he was supposed to be dropping propaganda leaflets. He was accused of instead dropping advertisements for his uh, photography and or balloonist companies, which was surely calumny if not slander and or libel first of all what better propaganda is there than warning the austrians uh that uh, business as usual continues and second of yes. all you know just because you're a besieging army doesn't mean you might not want to have your photography taken this is just this is just thinking and that's what i, yes. I love about this guy he he's, he's resolutely middle class which always makes a better culture figure in my eyes his dad was a bookseller, so he comes by it honestly. And he early on becomes fascinated by the new technology of photography, begins as a caricaturist. He's also, in addition to all of his other great gifts, he is apparently the kind of person that everyone likes to uh, spend time with because he has no trouble uh, taking pictures of all the greats. Uh, he takes uh, pictures not only of our, our old friend Sarah Bernhardt, but Victor Hugo, uh, Charles Baudelaire, Alexander Dumas, I don't know if it's feel or pair, possibly both. He lived long enough. Uh, then um, uh, Liszt and Offenbach, he tried to do natural photography. He tried to do uh, photography sort of in situ. So you'd be in a, you know, oh, here I am in my portico uh, having a, a, a delicious glass of wine when the photographer came. Uh, type shots. So he was, he was candid photography back when being candid still meant you had to spend, you know, an hour setting everything up. So he, he was uh, a visionary in that way. And at the sort of tail end of his life, when he's got his photography studio in Paris, uh, he also is still adopting, still adapting. He has the first neon sign possibly in the world, certainly in Paris constructed and then lights the entire exterior of his photography studio with neon. So if you are thinking, how can I get me some of that proper 80s vibe into my 1890s? Well, there we are. Uh, Nadar's got a neon lit photography studio and, and hangout for the, uh, the fun and good looking and wealthy. And that's a good thing. And, and I love him. Yes. In uh, 1895, he's uh, 75 years old. He's uh, might be numerically in his dotage, but not at all. He's still a, a vigorous character. He would be uh, played by uh, somebody perhaps under uh, a, a lot of prosthetic uh, makeup. 
he might be your your Robbie Coltrane character or uh, uh, someone uh, in that order. We've uh, glossed over his ballooning a bit, um, and yeah, so because well, it's it sort of he sort of stops by the time of the Belle Epoque. Yes, uh, the ballooning is is like a generation earlier. But yeah. you you are making a mistake, people, if he doesn't still have his famous balloon, the giant, in storage somewhere mm-hmm. for the player characters to have to go up in. Uh, this is a, a massive, ungainly double decker balloon. Uh, so one that, uh, if artillery existed, would not last for very long. <laughs> and he became the world's first aerial photographer, right? You, you don't, you're not a photographer and a balloonist without combining those two things. And so yeah. he w- was absolutely a pioneer in uh, creating aerial shots of, of Paris, which, of course, uh, would be a great wonder. No one sees the a city from an aerial point of view. So, you know, he's... We're prefiguring all of the the drone photography you now see in documentaries, where that's now gone from a, a fascinating shot to a cliche shot in about two years. And he would uh, take passengers up in his balloon, and a, a dozen at a time. This was a real monster, yes, uh, of a balloon. It's a proper player character uh, balloon. You know, you can take a dozen people up, which means you can easily take six player characters and all their uh, equipment and heavy artillery, or their strange. A Carcosa detecting engine that they've had built. Yeah, absolutely. He's got he's got to have Le Giant in a in a, a big uh, warehouse somewhere uh, in Paris that he you know well in in a good cause perhaps I could be convinced type uh, situation. And um, yes. uh, yeah, like like you say, it, it's a it's it's such a big, such a famous, such a cool balloon that it impressed a young uh, uh, journalist and writer named Jules Verne, who said. Why this balloon is great! You could you could spend five weeks in it. That would be a great uh, thesis for a novel. You spend five weeks in a balloon. Ah, there we are. And he uh, he wrote uh, his first voyage extraordinaire about how cool it would be to have um, uh, Nadar's balloon uh, as your as your base of operations. And uh, then he immortalized him in From the Earth to the Moon as the uh, French character. Uh, Michel Ardan. And of course, Ardan is a anagram of Nadar, which is how you know that he belongs there. Uh, you can also use him to, uh, since he was, has been famous and well connected for uh, decades and decades to uh, be a source of information about past generations in Paris. Uh, he famously was one of the people who was uh, shocked and appalled by Baron Haussmann's uh, extreme renovation of Paris. And uh, he uh, remembers how uh, bustling and disordered the city used to be before everything was made uh, straight and regular in the uh, inner core of the city. And uh, he is also pals with the Impressionists. Famously, he uh, lent his studio to them in 1874 for a a big exhibition. And uh, at that time, their work was considered so shocking that he also suffered some blowback because people accused him of assisting art so vile that it threatened the health of any pregnant women uh, unfortunate enough to view it. And of course, those of you who know the uh, paintings of the Impressionists know how absolutely terrifying that they uh, they remain to this day. Oh, wait, they don't. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, maybe he's got a, you've got a, a water lily condition. But that's why they're in so many cookie tins and calendars and all of that. It's it's as though, Robin, it was some sort of artistic effort that was obscurely terrifying and no one could identify why because it violated no canon of morality, but it then yielded its way into culture and took it over. And now we just accept it as normal now. Dun, dun, dun. 
Dun, dun, dun. Uh, well, on, uh, on that note, I think that we, uh, it's time for us to, uh, get in our balloon and, uh, fly over this exciting commercial message and see what segment might possibly wait on the other side. The best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive through Keep this podcast's balloon from bursting by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Ian Nystrom. Michael Kuehl. Diane Donaldson. Ethan Schoonover. And Jake Moss. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Bates, Patreon backer, asks Ken and Robin, when Bruce Lee and Jimi Hendrix were both living in Seattle in the late 50s, what kinds of occult mysteries did they team up to investigate? Uh, Robin, uh, do you have any uh, immediate thoughts? I, I guess we can sort of lay out the groundwork. Uh, Bruce Lee moved to Seattle in 1959 at the age of uh, 19, or actually at the age of 18. His birthday's in November. And uh, studied drama in college. He, he basically went to uh, a university and he opened up his first martial arts studio in Seattle. And he was in Seattle from 1959 to 1964. And uh, his... Exactly two years younger contemporary, Jimi Hendrix, both of them born November 27th, lived in Seattle his whole young life, and in 1959 uh, began to get his first gigs, bought his first electric guitar, or rather had his, uh, I forget if his dad or his, like his uncle, uh, bought him his first electric guitar in 59, because the first gig he played, no one could hear him sing or play, because everything was so loud, and he was like, I gotta get an electric guitar. So he uh, spent... Uh, the years from 1959 to 1961, uh, gigging, building up um, uh, a reputation as a guitarist. Uh, he was fired from his first band for being too much of a show-off, which I guess is the Jimi Hendrix way. <laughs> and then um, uh, also was apparently, and this we have only the word of the Washington State Court System and uh, Seattle Police Department for this, uh, was apparently uh, hanging out with a bad element because in 1961, he is given the choice of going to prison for uh, being found in stolen cars or uh, going to the army. And he chooses the army. And that is what uh, gets Jimi Hendrix out of Seattle in 1961. So we have a window of about three years where 
Bruce Lee and Jimi Hendrix. Uh, Bruce Lee would have been uh, 19 to 21, and Jimi Hendrix would have been uh, 17 to 19. So they're they're of an age where they could uh, uh, be played by uh, people on the CW and, and fight occult mysteries. And uh, Seattle in 1959, besides the occult mystery of why would you live in Seattle, uh, what do you got, Robin? Right. Well, first of all, clearly the, the stolen car thing is first, if you're investigating the occult, sometimes you have to seal a car. Yeah. No, that's that's legitimate. And the having to leave and go, go into the army would have been some sort of uh, a mystical uh, decision in order to, uh, you know, protect people and, uh, you know, whatever dark uh, forces were involved that they had to... Uh, you know, and their occult busting uh, activities, at least for a while. And also, I think we can see from uh, Hendrix's uh, later hits that they are suffused with mystical imagery. So we can uh, look at them and uh, sense uh, what, if not mystical powers that he uh, wielded himself, at least ones that he was familiar with. And I, I'm going to say that he probably wielded some because, yeah. you know, if if six were nine, that's clearly Kabbalism right there. Fire, uh, obviously, he had some elemental uh, abilities and, uh, you know, his setting his guitar on fire clearly uh, would have been a uh, a tribute to the salamanders. And all along the Watchtower, of course, he didn't write, but is full of uh, mystical uh, imagery. He recognized uh, it, its power. He recognized its its power. It was a, an important uh, spell for him. Burning of the midnight lamp is another suggestion of uh, a ritual expertise. So I think eventually he would have taken all of that magic and put it back into uh, his music in order to do an even greater service uh, for the world by uh, uh, with his uh, psychedelic take on the blues that uh, is still uh, uh, very exciting and redolent today. Um, so he would have been the, uh, the magician of the group, whereas uh, Bruce, of course, we know what what he would be uh, doing in a in a super team up like that. Occasionally, when you run into uh, cult forces, there are cultists and uh, deep ones and so forth that uh, uh, need a good boot to the head. So uh, Bruce Bruce would be supplying that. exactly. They need a little jeet kundoing. So I think that you've done some uh, some research, Ken, into uh, various cases. Uh, that they uh, might be tackling. Yeah, a modicum of it. Uh, to, to begin with, we can simply turn to the Geobibliography of Anomalies by my buddy George Eberhardt and turn to Seattle and discover that in 1959, Seattle is veritably riven by skyquakes. So that might be one of the elemental things that you were talking about. The air elementals are getting stroppy. There's a skyquake, a whole series of them in the 40s and 50s, including February 12th, 1959, which can maybe be one of the early cases or the April 1st uh, skyquake um, that uh, brings them together. Uh, that can be their opening case is the case of the mysterious skyquakes. And uh, then there's a bunch of UFOs in uh, Seattle and the Seattle area, the same era. And then, of course, Seattle itself has ample ghosts uh, that run around. And I think that um, uh, electrified uh, uh, resonant frequencies are probably great for uh, controlling ghosts, while boots to the head will take out old man Withers and prevent him from monetizing his haunted amusement park. So uh, they're probably going to be investigating a, a bunch of ghosts as well. Um, and then there is, as it transpires, the third ranking member of the Tibetan hierarchy after the uh, uh, Chinese communists invade Tibet in 1959, the Sakya Lama flees uh, to India and then to Seattle. And 
He sets up a Sakya monastery in Seattle, and I'm sure that refugee Tibetan Buddhists bring with them evil communists, possibly uh, wrathful demons of some sort, possibly CIA guys who are looking for the for the payroll uh, because the CIA was at that time trying to sponsor various uh, Tibetan anti-communist activities. And maybe someone in the Sakya monastery thought, you know, this should go to a spiritual cause, not to the cause of hurting and so there, there could be all manner of, of activities going on in and around the Sakya Lama, who is uh, establishing himself in Seattle in the same era. Also in this era, and this may be a case where they fail or a case where they stop the, 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 the vampire, but there's a, a blowback that they don't know about. Uh, young Ted Bundy is beginning, not his uh, career, but his, uh, what would I say, coursework, his, his qualifiers. He's, out um, uh, sneaking around and peeking in people's windows and causing trouble and probably torturing animals for all I know. So you have a sort of a, a creepy street level uh, adventure that uh, that may not go entirely well in the spirit of the later Seattle based television show Millennium. Yeah. So what you uh, I would, whenever you have a uh, a criminal figure from real history who is uh, in before they have done their terrible things uh, or it's just coming up, uh, you sort of. Uh, can introduce them as a secondary figure. Uh, so he might have a protege. Uh, he might be getting some lessons uh, in uh, mind control from a vampire. He might uh, be uh, basically show up as a, as a Renfield. Yeah, exactly. And so the, he hasn't actually done anything that uh, Bruce and Jimmy can put him away for, uh, but they might, you know, let their patrons know to keep an eye on, on them. And of course, uh, that we know that, <laughs> It doesn't doesn't pan out. Yep. So I understand there's some uh, some geomantic uh, architectural uh, juice to be squeezed out of the uh, space needle. Yes, and and this is going to just blaggard the name of people who I'm sure are no more uh, or no worse a bunch of criminals and monsters than any other rich scions of the aristocracy and real estate uh, developers are. So I'm I don't want to traduce. Uh, hereditary millionaires or real estate developers. Obviously, none of them could ever do anything wrong, but let's pretend that some of them are bad because yes. five of them get together in something that they literally call the pentagram group. And seriously, if you don't want people to draw the wrong conclusion, don't name yourself the pentagram group. And yes. they're looking. Well, they considered the calling themselves the bloody altar group, but that was too many letters. <laughs> didn't too, didn't too, fit on the business wouldn't cards. Wouldn't fit on the shirts. Exactly. On the business cards. Thank you for that throwback. Bailey and throwback. So the pentagram group spends this period looking for a spot to erect the space needle in. And the space needle, of course, will go up for the 1962 World's Fair. It will be being built in 1961. And that struck me as the perfect capper, the end, the final fight that breaks the, the Bruce and Jimmy team up where Jimmy has to leave Seattle in order to um, uh, uh, get away from it. And then, and then Bruce has to throw himself deeper into the martial arts and, and master the, the, the palms of death and the other uh, amazing things that he does before going on to become the Bruce Lee uh, that we know of today. And so they are looking around in Seattle in that sort of creepy real estate developer noir villain way for land on which to erect their, insane monolith that has no purpose whatsoever except to be a big tall thing sticking up out of a pressure point of the earth so obviously they're up to some sort of templar geomantic hijink and uh in addition to all the other 
uh, badness that uh, real estate developers and hereditary millionaires get up to. Only in fiction, of course. Only in literally every yeah, single... Yeah, can't think of any real-life examples of evil real estate developers. Nope, nope. Uh, solid citizens, beautiful human beings, every last one of them. Uh, many are saying that the needle, of course, is the sort of uh, ultimate failure to some extent of... of Bruce and Jimmy, that they, they, they fought so hard, but the needle's still going up. And maybe it goes up on not quite the right piece of land. They've at least stopped it from immediately draining, uh, the, the soul of the city of Seattle that it might take, oh, I don't know, 30 or 40 years to turn it into a humorless hive of, of boosters and, um, uh, mediocre coffee <laughs> exporters. And, and so the, uh, uh, the, 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 the space needle is not, uh, exactly right to, to immediately, uh, achieve the Godhead or transcend Baphomet or whatever the, the pentagram group is up to. But I think that's sort of the, 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 as they do their adventures, they run onto the tendrils of the pentagram group and then they run up and they discover, oh, this planet's going to connect with those skyquake aliens that we fought on our very first adventure and, and drain their power and, and use it. Uh, for some sort of occult machination. And that's, of course, the, the reason that Jimmy was so sensitized to the Watchtower is that he'd seen it being built by the forces of evil. Yes. And clearly, I think what they do in order to uh, suppress its, its full world-destroying power, and it's a sacrifice that they make and it causes them to have to split up and never acknowledge that they ever even met. Right. Um, destroy all records of their, of their partnership, except, of course, the... Right. Uh, three to four seasons on the CW. Right. But what they finally have to do as part of that ultimate ritual is uh, bury the Black Lotus and the five Mox gems on the site in order to, uh, therefore, you know, uh, create a future efflorescence of uh, uh, powerful cultural forces that will finally uh, blossom in the 1990s, uh, long after both of them have uh, departed for other spheres. Mm -hmm. Have, Have moved on to fight the skyquakes from heaven. Exactly. Uh, well, uh, once our uh, heroes have ascended, it's time for us to uh, declare this segment over and see uh, what other... Uh, I think there's a bit of an aerial theme going on there here. Is. We've got uh, balloons. Uh, we've got the ascension of the Space Needle. And, uh, well, let's just uh, do a commercial and reveal uh, what our final aeronautical segment happens to be. What are swords without sorceries? Nada. What are sorceries without swords? Bopkiss. Thank goodness, then, for Arc Dream Publishing's Shane Ivey. Award-winning co-author of Delta Green, the role-playing game? Exactly that, Shane Ivey, who brings a haunted world alive for 5th edition fantasy with swords and sorceries. Explore crumbling civilization separated by a dangerous sea and wild lands. Encounter surprises and exotic dangers. Seek your fortunes. Or find gruesome dad. In the tombs of forgotten gods and evils best left buried. Swords and Sorceries draws blade-slinging inspiration from ancient history and the myths and folklore that inspired the oldest RPGs. Seize all three Swords and Sorceries adventures today. The Sea Demon's Gold. The Song of the Sun Queens. The Tomb of Fire. Play in the Broken Empire or adapt them to any 5th edition campaign. Order and find bonus downloads and resources at swordsandsorceries.com. That's Swords and Sorceries from Shane Ivey. (laughs) 
The clacking of chronotons and the whirring of time gears tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. Of course, this is the conveyance that his employers at Time Incorporated used to send him back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, beloved Patreon backer Kevin Nolt uh, wants you, Ken, to save the Rotodyne. I've been thinking a lot about the Avro Arrow, which is a uh, another uh, plane uh, from the late 50s that was uh, uh, nixed uh, from aeronautical history. But uh, uh, you're going to fly your uh, time vehicle over uh, to the uh, to the UK. Exactly. I guess to begin with, let's talk about the Rotodyne. The uh, Rotodyne is uh, basically a sort of culmination of the autogyro uh, with one change that I'll get to. But the autogyro, as we know, is a combined airplane and helicopter. The Shadow flew one. Uh, it has a airplane engine and a, a helicopter rotor, and it takes off with the helicopter rotor, and then the airplane engine kicks in and flies it in horizontal flight over things. And so it is a thing that can fly as fast as a plane while maintaining the ability to hover and land vertically of a helicopter. It's it's a best of both worlds in the ideal world. Now, in the general run of things, it is as noisy and fuel hoggy as a helicopter, but it's a slow, small plane. So that is why we don't all have autogyros today. But if you're thinking slow, that sounds like a bus. That's the idea of the Rotodyne. And the Rotodyne uh, had the clever idea of rather than having a big old uh, gearbox that uh, shifts you around and could uh, fry out at any time and leave you stranded in midair, what it did is it just ran the fuel up into the rotors to tiny jets on the ends of the rotors. And so rather than having gears that move the rotors, little jets on the ends of the rotors spin them around. So so it, it's mechanically less complex and annoying than a proper autogyro. And it's that little jets on the ends that turn it from a autogyro into what is now called a convertiplane, but at that time was called a rotodyne because there was only the one and it was being built by the good people at Ferry uh, Aircraft in, uh, in England. And... And I lie, there are, of course, lots of other ones, and people are right now, you know, writing in and saying the Germans had one and the Russians were building one at the exact same time. Fine. There was a lot of Rotodons, <laughs> but the ferry is the best one. It's the best named one, that's for sure. Absolutely. And um, uh, the, the, the notion of the Rotodyne is that it would provide a point-to-point transport uh, in cities. And rather than have to go out to the airport and go through all that nonsense, you could just go to, for example, the Pan Am building in New York, and you could go up to the roof and climb into the Rotodyne, and it would fly you to Boston or Washington or uh, or possibly to LaGuardia because you don't want to do that either. And so the notion was that it would be either luxury uh, commuting or it would be a intercity uh, transport mode. And the original version of the ferry was uh, rated to carry about uh, 40 people, give or take. Uh, the big one that they were building to um, uh, draw military contracts uh, could carry 75 people. And at the uh, uh, in the development process, Robin, uh, I'm, you'll be glad to know that after they showed off the Rotodyne in um, uh, the Paris Air Show of 1958, uh, a airport, an airline in Canada, I think it's called the... Okanagan Airways or something like that bought one and they said they wanted it because it was ideal from going from Vancouver to uh, Vancouver Island. And I'm sure it was right. Cause that's a, that's a parlous journey into the, the, uh, the, the wind shear uh, into Vancouver is notoriously uh, terrible, but I don't know uh, 
what a giant auto, I guess it would be bulky enough that it yeah. wouldn't be. I mean, uh, th- and there's, the and there's a little bit of YouTube footage of showing this thing in flight. And once you get over the fact that it does kind of look like a bus, there's something sort of like, um, it, it looks like a, a really big, uh, well, it looks like a really big helicopter because it is, but it, it, it also has that sort of 1950s blocky good looks that like a giant Cadillac has. It's the same sort of feel. So you get a sense of why people love it. And, uh, and you can watch as much fairy rotodyne. There's only a very little footage of it in the air because it was all burned by the Ministry of Defense because the Ministry of Defense, uh, the British Ministry of Defense shut down the, uh, fairy rotodyne along with about three dozen other projects. Uh, between 1950 and 1960, uh, because the Ministry of Defense issued a white paper in 1957 that said, now that there were missiles, we would never need aircraft that carried people. We wouldn't need fighter uh, jets. We wouldn't need helicopters. We wouldn't need any of that nonsense. We're just going to phase it all out and build missiles. And that piece of idiocy was authored probably by the bureaucracy that just didn't want to pay a bunch of uh, money to develop planes and was looking for right. something to to do so that the uh, uh, the Labor Party would not come into power. Well, so, w- what it sounds like now yeah. to me is that they just got the boilerplate document of why the Avro, the Aero Avro was killed, which uh, was, uh, it was a bomber interceptor. And they said, well, we don't need bomber interceptors anymore with intercontinental ballistic missiles. That turns out to be... There was a window of time when they still needed them that was yeah. arguably prematurely canned. Yeah. Uh, so obviously they just took the document that canceled the Avro and failed to change the reason for its cancellation because right. it makes no sense whatsoever <laughs> to cancel a commuter Airbus. Right. Well, <laughs> due to its inability to intercept missiles. Right. Now there's a there's a lot of things wrong with the with the defense white paper and there's there's two. There, there, there's uh, in the time machine, we sometimes meet with great historical forces. And here we have two great historical forces. One, Britain is broke. And to a lesser extent, Canada is broke because World War II happened. And uh, unlike World War One, we did not loan Britain all the money in the world at no interest uh, and let them just do whatever they wanted with it. Uh, we, you know, sort of made them pay some of their own freight on this war. And so... They did not have the ability to take what in 1945 was probably the second best aeronautic industry in the world and develop it into a, a actual functioning aeronautical industry. It's almost like the United States didn't want to have a big and that's uh, the competition in the aeronautical factor sphere. Is that the United States uh, aircraft companies saw no reason why they shouldn't get all the military contracts in the world. And when you look at it from their perspective, they have a point. But when you look at it from the perspective of the ferry aircraft company, they are stuck in a bad place. So let us, for the nonce, because uh, we don't premise reject the time machine except for when it's really necessary, let us, for the nonce, pretend that these giant historical forces can, if not be evaded, let us say they can at least be diverted a bit. Right, because I'm sure that Time Incorporated, like me, would love to have a commuter aircraft system where you don't have to check your your carry-on right and uh, if these are flying buses i bet there's room for my modestly sized carry-on i'll bet there is um and i'll bet that they go from uh the top of a building in chicago to the top of a building in toronto just like that so now having made our obeisance to great historical forces let us turn to the actual personalities involved and there are two uh, hinge points in the development of the... F- I, guess, I guess I should complete the story. Um, 
the, uh, as I say, the defense white paper comes out and that leads to a range of cancellation of British government contracts for aircraft. And then it leads the aviation minister to use the threat of canceling contracts as a lever to force Britain's 20 aircraft companies to merge into three aircraft companies. And you may say, well, Ken, that's what happens with a labor government in charge. And I would say, these are the conservatives, for goodness sake. This is under the Macmillan administration. And um, uh, uh, Harold Wilson isn't going to get into power and ruin everything until 1964. This is being done by faultless conservatives, uh, such as Duncan Sandys, who is a minister of defense in 1957, thus responsible for the white paper and minister of aviation in 1960, when ferry aircraft is forced to merge with Westland, which is the company that builds helicopters in uh, Great Britain, according to Duncan Sandys, and therefore doesn't need a bunch of competition from other helicopters, much less rotodynes. Um, uh, the Westland Corporation makes, I think, a good faith effort to keep the rotodyne going. But uh, in 1962, the whole project is canned because, first of all, it's not Westland's project. Second of all, the British European Airlines, which was a thing at the time, refuses to buy any rotodynes, uh, they say, because of the sound question. And it, admittedly, four jet engines on the end of a helicopter rotor sounds like a recipe for all the noise in the world. But in their defense, the good people at Ferry had been working to baffle the sound. They had like uh, 40 different sound suppressor technologies. They'd already cut the sound profile down to about that of an underground uh, train uh, going by. Right. Because without that, there later on, there will be no podcasting. Right. Exactly. And so the efforts to, um, to, to shrink the sound at art, it was an ongoing process. So there was a lot of things that I strongly suspect that BEA also depended on government contracts, of course, like all airlines are, uh, was asked to remain obdurate on the sound issue so as to give the British government a little bit of cover for land rotodyne. And indeed, when they canceled the rotodyne, they did not behave as though a government with nothing to hide behaves because they smashed up the rotodyne prototype, except for a tiny bit of the, of the uh, rotor housing, which they then keep in a locked warehouse and no one gets to go touch it except for uh, legitimate aviation historians. And then they tried to burn all of the rotodyne footage and only bits of it were smuggled out uh, of the of the Westland uh, company by people who had a sentimental attachment to the thing. And that's why you can see little squibs of its footage on the YouTubes. So right. and, and this is, a, a, a again, another parallel with the Avro is the reason this seems uh, like a mysterious uh, lost cause of, of aviation history is that, again, all the plans and models and everything were uh, ordered, destroyed because bits of the technology were sensitive military technology that they did not want the Soviets getting a hold of. The fear was not necessarily that the Soviets would build an Avro Aero or build a Rotodyne, but that they might find something in there that they could use to build something with, and you don't want them uh, to do that. In the case of the Avro, some of the models were sunk in the middle of Lake Ontario and later recovered decades later, uh, which is a, a fun, cool uh, part of the thing. But that just makes it seem, you know, super mysterious, as if uh, mysterious time operatives have gotten involved and have, have uh, you know, that they're doing a big old veil out. And are up to some hijinks. Exactly. Uh, so, Duncan Sandys, as I've mentioned previously, is the faultlessly uh, conservative defense minister and air minister who basically, if anyone did, uh, murdered the uh, ferry rotodyne. And he did it uh, over the objections of Prime Minister Macmillan, who literally wrote 
a memo saying this project must be maintained. So we have historical plausibility that if Duncan Sandys had just not been involved, we could maybe have gotten the British government to order enough rhododines that it would have been picked up by the American government uh, and built uh, by a company called Carmen in Connecticut under license. And then we would have big honking 75 man helicopter deliveries uh, that would uh, uh, suddenly make uh, Vietnam look entirely different uh, because uh, you got a troop carrying helicopter, which uh, you don't really have in uh, the course of the war. You a little bit have uh, at, at the very tail end that Huey could carry, you know, a, a squad if it's a big Huey, but this is a 75 man, which means they can carry a squad and some machine guns or, or lots of good stuff. So the, uh, so the fair rhododyne, uh, makes a counterinsurgency war. At least it puts another card into the hands of the counterinsurgents, which is something. Um, and the way that Duncan Sandys was qualified to be a uh, defense minister is that he was married to Diana Churchill, Winston Churchill's daughter. And uh, there's a couple of uh, ways around that. The first thing is you just go and you meet Diana Churchill early and you show her a good time. And and so when she meets Duncan Sandys later, she says, this guy's a stiff. I don't want to marry him. He's just uh, he's just a, a jerk and I don't want to have anything to do with him. So that's that's one way. But if Diana Churchill, for whatever reason, does not uh, suitably blandished by uh, vodka martinis and charming American accents. The good thing is Duncan Sandys uh, digs a pit for his own destruction because he is carrying on with Margaret Duchess of Argyle. And uh, Margaret Duchess of Argyle is a woman who uh, had a healthy appetite for uh, gentleman callers. Uh, she said, uh, go to bed early and often was her motto. <laughs> And so in 1963, her husband had her, uh, had her desk and, uh, and safe broken into uh, while she was in New York and found a lot of photographs. And amongst the photographs were those of a headless Polaroid photograph, uh, of a, a figure with uh, no head showing in the photograph, but Margaret Duchess of Argyle was in the photograph for sure. And, uh, there was a great scandal and uh, Duncan Sandys was named as possibly one of the suspects. It was later assumed that it was Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Douglas Fairbanks maintained his innocence. Innocence is maybe the wrong word. His non-involvement in, in this particular scandal. <laughs> this particular photograph. Your Honor, I was involved with four other scandals. Who has the time? It's, it's how Bruce Wayne defends himself against arguments that he's Batman. So, so the, um, uh, uh, Duncan Sandys did, in fact, offer to resign in 1963 over the affair, and it hadn't even been demonstrably proven that he was involved. And, and we know that he was involved because later on, Margaret Duchess of Argyle, who I like better and better the more I read about her, said, oh, that was taken with the only Polaroid in the country, which was at the time the property of the Ministry of Defense. <laughs> so I think... <laughs> So I think that if you get Duncan Sandys exposed, literally, um, as someone who is not just carrying on with titled, uh, with, 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 uh, titled, uh, nobility, but also doing so with government cameras, uh, you can probably ease him out, uh, before, uh, the 1957 defense white paper and certainly before he in 1960 uh, forces uh, the destruction of the ferry company by forcing it into a merger with Westland. And there is another other possibility, my backup backup possibility, because quite frankly, uh, Diana Churchill was a little hurtful. So I, I doubled, I doubled down on this one. Uh, in 1959, there was a brief thought that what they could do to get around the problem 
of uh, the British government breathing down their neck was they could sell one of them, uh, one of the, the Rotodynes, to Eastern Airlines, uh, which was at that time run by American war hero Eddie Rickenbacker, and that if they'd sold the Rotodyne to him, he could then have taken it and gotten the United States Army to give it a military trial. And I want to let you know that in a war zone, it doesn't quite matter how loud everything is because it's a war. Everything's pretty loud and it's not um, uh, going to be a pretty covert insertion if you're dropping a bus and 75 guys down in a jungle somewhere. So the possible uh, sale to Eastern Airlines was nixed because in 1959, they were briefly on the high from getting the do not cancel this memo from Macmillan. And we're like, oh, thank God, we don't need to bring the Americans into it at all. And so nothing ever happened about it. So I think that in 1959, there can be a bit of a, um, uh, well, better safe than sorry uh, type uh, after work cocktails. And the deal with Eastern Airlines goes through. Eddie Rickenbacker gets his hands on a um, uh, on a rotodyne. And then the United States Army says, well, this is the best thing in the world. If you wanted to, I don't know, go to some jungle and show people who's who or invade Cuba. Yeah. I'm liking now this. Now that it's an American plane, we're all for it. Now that it's an American plane built by Carmen in Connecticut, um, uh, we love it. And so uh, you simply have to maybe talk to a Connecticut senator here and there, maybe a couple of other people. But I see no problem having a bunch of ferry rotodynes rolling off the uh, the assembly line just in time to be used maybe in the Bay of Pigs if we're all very lucky and good, but certainly in any number of other tropical squabbles that America goes and gets itself into over the ensuing decade and, and change. And I do want to point out that the Carmen Helicopter Company built the Sea Sprite, which is the Navy's rescue helicopter that did in fact serve in Vietnam and served with great honor and distinction. And that Carmen himself is uh, the guy who developed the uh, laminated helicopter blade and is basically the reason helicopter blades uh, are strong as opposed to fall apart uh, from all the stress. So uh, I think the Carmen uh, magic on the ferry rotodyne would have been a good thing. And even if you don't uh, get Duncan Sandys in trouble, uh, just having that as a lifeline makes it the Carmen rotodyne or the Carmen uh, FA-1 or whatever they would have called it. And you still get a lot of military use. And then once you have the military buying it, of course, you have uh, the transference of military technology to civilian world. So you start getting rotodyne buses, uh, of flying buses in America, maybe not in the early sixties, but certainly by the mid or later sixties. And so all the cool, uh, seventies and, and late sixties movies that take place in cities can also have ferry rotodynes landing in them. And that would be cool in and of itself. Right. And it gives you a, a cooler, Substitute for the dirigible in order to signal an alternate reality. The dirigible, or at least a different, the different one. They're, they're awesome, but they're overused. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Well, Ken, it seems to me that you're often fighting against, uh, you know, essentially ineradicable historical forces. Uh, you alluded to one earlier, but the uh, challenge of getting a uh, expensive uh, military contract approved in America in the '60s. Uh, seems not insurmountable. I feel like this is going to play to my strengths of drinking and not liking communists. <laughs> and so I feel like this will be a good, a good, um, uh, I don't say a milk run because we wouldn't be drinking milk, but yeah. Well, I think in the distance, I am hearing the somewhat muffled, but not entirely uh, inaudible sounds of an approaching rotodyne. So I think it's time for us to, uh, stop recording this before uh, my voice can no longer be heard, but we'll be uh, back 
uh, next week in what hopefully will be a slightly better reality. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by Jim Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Entirely of your own free will, without a hint of mind control, you will join such agency-having Patreon backers as... Martin Rundqvist. Yuri Horneman. Drew Clary. Keelan O'Hay. And Dreaming Johnny. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Snag our top-selling design, Time Incorporated. Changing history since Aristotle was a triceratops. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, uh, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>